I want to tell you why I'm preaching this message. I'm preaching this message because we need to find ways forward that enrich our dialogue about race and culture and loss and waiting and God. I'm preaching this message to hear the gospel in the hope that you and I can recognize that in using an Old Testament sister to preach the gospel of Jesus and in mentioning her and in listening to her that we are absolutely listening to the gospel that Jesus would call good news. I'm preaching this sermon this morning because I want to listen to how one person or several people from bottom places counsel us in dealing with the bottom of life in the world. I'm preaching this sermon this morning to be moved by the example of one woman's culture, one woman's life whose culture was patriarchal, whose family was split and complex, and who herself wanted some kind of justice that she could hold on to. I'm preaching this sermon this morning to invite you and us to think about biblical stories that might emerge for us as a multi-ethnic congregation that wants to be biblical and relevant and relational, thank you, when black people and a lot of other people are being killed just for being who we are. I want to thank my sister worship leaders, Cole and Jamelin, for uh, introducing us to the biblical text this morning. I want to read a contemporary rendering of the biblical text, and I was looking around. Uh, I think it is true that we're all adults in the room. There are one or two babies who shouldn't be repeating what they're hearing yet, and uh, but I want to warn you because I am reading a rendering that is uncharacteristic for me and for us in this space. Now, there are people that I won't be reading that I think you ought to look at and find out about if you've not heard of these people. And I thought of them. They came before me in my work this week in ser uh, sermon prep. Uh, one of them is Peggy McIntosh of the National Seed Project. And I think she, in her own work and way, has a kind of contemporary view of our passage this morning. Patricia Leary of the Whittier Law School is another person who comes to mind, who has kind of a contemporary way of looking at, not necessarily the the Old Testament because these folks wouldn't say that, but of, of giving us a contemporary view of what we'll talk about this morning. Tim Wise, an author, some of you are aware of his work, is also kind of a contemporary um, author of texts that, that are related to us this morning. And as Pastor David in Bronzeville has been finding for months, the work of Ida B. Wells uh, is a kind of another person with contemporary renderings of our passage this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 1. I brought two um, contemporary texts. I will choose one because um, the second is rather lengthy. 
Um, and what I want to do is read from the poetic counsel of Audre Lorde. Because I don't believe in editing or censoring sacred counsel, I will offer her words as she has written them. And, and I'm warning you, just in case you're the, the, uh, the type to get upset when you hear the pastor use cuss words, that the pastor's going to use the cuss word because she uses one in her poem. Uh, you can certainly email me about that. Uh, you can email any of the leaders about that. I'm warning you leaders that you might be emailed about that. It, it, it is not gross. It is nothing you haven't heard before, but you haven't heard it from here. And um, just so you know how I will respond, I will talk to you about how important it is to use the language of folks use the language that folks use when we're talking about this kind of material. We need to hear Hannah, and I think Audre Lorde is another rendering for us. So listen to her poem. That sounds different. New York City, she was not a Chicagoan, unfortunately. How do you spell change like frayed slogan underwear with the emptied can of yesterday's meanings, with yesterday's names? And what does the wee bird see with who has lost its eyes? There is nothing beautiful left in the streets of this city. I have come to believe in death and renewal by fire. Past questioning the necessities of blood or why it must be mine or my children's time that will see the grim city quake to be reborn perhaps, blackened again but this time with a sense of purpose. Tired of the past tense forever, of assertion and repetition, of the ego trips through an incomplete self. Where two years ago, proud rang for promise, but now it is time for fruit and all the agonies are barren. Only the children are growing. For how else can the self become whole, save by making self into its own new religion? I am bound like an old lover, a true believer, to this city's death by accretion and slow ritual, and I submit to its penance for a trial as new steel is tried. I submit my children also to its death throes and agony, and they are not even the city's past lovers, but I submit them to the harshness and growing cold, to the brutalizations which, if survived, will teach them strength or an understanding of how strength is gotten and will not be forgotten. It will be their city then. I submit them, loving them above all others, save myself, to the fire, to the rage, to the ritual sacrifications, to be tried as new steel is tried. And in its wasting, the city shall try them as the blood splash of a royal victim tries the hand of the destroyer. 
I hide behind tenements and subways in fluorescent alleys, watching as flames walk the streets of an empire's altar, raging through the veins of the sacrificial stench pot, smeared upon the east shore of a continent's insanity, conceived in the psychic twilight of murderers and pilgrims, Rank with money and nightmare and too many useless people who will not move over nor die, who cannot bend even before the winds of their own preservation, even under the weight of their own hates, who cannot amend nor conceive nor even learn to share their own visions, who bomb my children into mortar in churches and work plastic, offal, and metal and the flesh of their enemies into subway rush hour temples where obscene priests finger and worship each other in secret and think they are praying when they squat to shit money pebbles shaped like their parents' brains who exist to go into dust to exist again grosser and more swollen and with without ever relinquishing space or breath or energy from their private hoard. I do not need to make war nor peace with these prancing and murderous deacons who refuse to recognize their role in this covenant we live upon and so have come to fear and despise even their own children. But I condemn myself and my loves, past and present, and the blessed enthusiasms of all my children to this city without reason or future, without hope to be tried as the new steel is tried before trusted to slaughter. I walk down the withering limbs of my last discarded house. And there is nothing worth salvage left in this city. But the faint, reedy voices like echoes of once beautiful children. has something to teach us. Hannah has something to teach us, though I'm, I'm, I'm not sure we can do more than ready ourselves for what she has to say. The biblical narrative, as Cole and Jamelin read it, speaks for itself. And we've heard part of it, part of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And I want to encourage you to read those first two or three chapters of 1 Samuel today or this week. And to read it slowly to get an appreciation of Hannah's experience. Her story is about more than I will point to, um, so read it, read those chapters. 
There are two senses this morning that occur to me that Hannah can be a model for us. And and I want to talk about Hannah as a model. And and there is a sense in which we can have Hannah in our lives. That that we who have friends can have Hannah in our lives as a friend. You you have friends at work, right? You, You have friends from school. Some of you have friends from church or small group. You have friends um, that you call friends. And when your work friends come around, you don't, you don't introduce them uh, to your small group friends as this is my work friend. You just say, this is my friend. And you might say, from work. Though that work friend would not necessarily be the person who you come to uh, to talk with when your life feels hard and bruised and when your soul is empty, when your hope is lost. I think that that friend is your Hannah. That that there is a sense in which we can go and get Hannah to be in our lives. And and we all need Hannahs who can come and hear us talk about our pain. Who has lived through her own pain, his own pain. And who can hold our pain and not dismiss our pain. There's, There's a sense in which, and there may be people who come to mind as I talk to you now. Who is your Hannah? Those Hannahs in your life. You may be Hannah for people in your life. The second sense is the sense in which I want to spend most of my time talking about. And I suppose they do bleed together or blur together. (coughs) Hannah uh, has attitudes and behaviors that I think are worth imitating. That Hannah presents to us specific gestures, ways of being, ways of thinking that are models for us. And I want to talk about three of them. The, the, the first way in which Hannah is a model for us is Hannah models a prayerful life. Listen uh, to the scripture again. And I was intentional about not giving our tech ministry a whole lot of work to do with these sermons today. So you will have to, to lend your ears again. To verses 9 through 13. After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Verse 13 says that Hannah was praying silently. Only her her lips moved, but her voice was not 
heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. Jewish people prayed aloud. Jewish people did not pray quietly. They prayed often ritually and loudly, corporately, together, reciting common prayers. So what Hannah is doing here, this way of praying is not only foreign, it's strange to the priest. Now, if we read her too quickly, we get the sense um, that, that in Hannah's life, prayer is about what we're saying and what God is giving us in response to what we're saying. Some of us understand prayer to be, we tell God what we want and God gives us what we want. That's what prayer is. And that is certainly true. That's a part of what prayer is. Um, um, but in Hannah's experience, she prayed for years for a child. She lived for years watching her husband's other wife have baby after baby. It takes a long time to make and have a baby. And the Bible says that Panina had babies, baby after baby. For years, this was Hannah's life. For years, this was Hannah's way of praying. Her request was for a child. And we have our own requests, don't we? We, we have our requests for our Samuels. We pray for things and can completely overlook how long it takes because when God gives us the answer to our prayers, we think that that thing, that person, that role, that job is the answer to our prayers. Sometimes, and I think in Hannah's case, uh, this happens, we get what we've asked for. At other times, we have to peer into all those days, making up those years in order to see what else we've received. You and I could think that answered prayer is just Samuel. You and I could think that the prayer for life is about that final moment where our sorrows have been traded for because we got what we wanted. But that's a poor prayerfulness. That's a malnourished view of prayer. That's a small view of prayer. None of the families whose loved ones have been killed because they were unarmed and black and interacting with police, got their Samuel. Could they be prayerful? None of the families of those slain police officers in Dallas got their Samuels. You know police officers pray every day to be able to come back home. And, and if they don't get that, is their life still prayerful? 
None of us in here who have been praying since a black man became the president of the United States and us who have been praying that that would be at least one aspect of racial reconciliation happening in this nation. None of us who have witnessed hate group memberships escalate since that day seven, eight years ago have gotten our Samuels. Can we be prayerful? We can talk about France. We can talk about Turkey, right? What does it mean to talk to a God, to sit in the company of a God who when you pray for peace and you watch the news, you don't get Samuel. These were the thoughts that I brought to this text this week and last week when I knew I had to preach but couldn't really put together what it was I would begin to preach. These were the thoughts as I was trying to get to Hannah's story because I think that Hannah knows things about Turkey and France and Dallas and Chicago and I think we could sleep her truth because she had a baby and after all, she got what she asked for. I think that Hannah would talk to us about prayer as the discovery of what's in the open hand of God. I don't know that she would just say it was Samuel. I think she would help us to think broader about prayer as coming over and over to the hand of God and waiting if it is closed and looking if it is open. Prayer, friends, is the discovery of what God has for us. It's not just getting something we need or want or request. That's a part of it. That's included. But Hannah's life shows us a model uh, that God has all these other things for us as we live while prayerfully waiting for those specific answers. Are y'all hearing me or y'all just quiet? I can't tell. Somebody talk back to me. Hannah spent years asking for a child. What could she have uh, experienced about God in those years? How would Hannah hmm, have come to understand who God was when God didn't give her Samuel? This is for you too. This is for me. She suffered and she ached with desire and you do too. She looked ahead in her life and, and saw the mounting disappointment month after month, year after year, holy day after holy day, and yet she did not stop. I, 
I, I can learn from Hannah. I can grow from Hannah. I don't, I, 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 I've learned this about myself. I've learned about myself um, that, that I, I don't know, is it my sweat? Boy, this thing is coming across. Daniel, I'm sorry if I, I learned this about myself that, that, that I don't like to lose. I learned that I'm not a loser. Um, but I will quit. I was telling my wife the other day, I was taking a class in college. It just comes back to me this morning. Uh, and, and, and I got to the midterm. It was one of the, I was a freshman, and I, I wasn't quite sure what a 300-level course was in a subject matter that I had never heard of. And uh, I told you I was a freshman, so uh, even though I knew everything, there were some things obviously I didn't know. And I, I was in this class, and uh, I knew right away that these folks in this class uh, knew more than I did, and I knew, uh, I knew I probably didn't belong in the class, and I gave myself to the mentor. I said, you know, I'm going to take this class because I'm pretty, I'm pretty clear about what I want in life. Now, my wife has other ways of talking about that, um, you know, but I'm pretty clear about things. I know how things should be, and I said, you know, I'm going to stay in this class because I can do this. I can figure out these names. I don't know who Nancy Trudeau is and all, you know, all these folks that I never heard of. I didn't know how to spell their names. And um, I got to the midterm and I said, well, <sighs> I'm, I'm going to lose if I stay in this class. The short is I quit. I dropped out of the class. And you can do that all the time in college apparently. And, um, Nobody knows until you talk about it in a sermon. And I don't, I don't like to lose, but I will quit before I lose. And when I think about Hannah, when I think about her model of praying and engaging with God even though she doesn't get what she's asked God for. I can learn from her. This is me who, when you, and I get to know some of you through your prayers, when you have been praying for things for months, and the staff in our prayer ministry, our faithful intercessors who pray for you on Sundays, all of us who pray for you throughout the week, we who get to know you when you're asking for God to, to, to bless your brother to be saved or to bless your sibling with a job or to bless your loved one who broke up uh, with their, their significant other or, or to bless you who are in the throes of a deep depression that you can't even understand. When, when I see those prayers, week after week and month after month and I'm asking God for those things and you're still not getting your Samuel 
I need to come to Hannah because I am tempted to say, clearly this is the wrong prayer. Clearly you're not hearing this prayer. Should I change it up? Should I ask you for something else? Because you're not hearing what I'm saying. I can learn from Hannah because I am disillusioned by the numberless deaths of my black people, people, period. People I know, people I don't know. Why pray? Why ask? Why go through that particular pain of opening you up to questions about me being here, which is another iteration of how black people are inspected and questioned and monitored and handled all the time. Why do that particular work of justice? Why do our particular part in what the Bible calls the ministry of reconciliation? These are some of my questions for my instructor, Hannah. And, and I don't know what your questions are. I don't know whether Hannah raised these kinds of questions the way I do. But what I do have is the scriptural testimony that even if she questioned she kept praying That's right. even if she came holiday after holiday with the same old thing on her lips she kept praying do we need this in our country? Do we need this in our congregation? Do you need this in your life? There was something in those prayers that had to be beyond what she named. There had to be something else in her life with God that wasn't tied to God giving her what she asked for exactly as she asked for it when she asked for it. Somebody say the word depth. There had to be, and again, not dismissing the particular request. She got the request. I'm not dismissing the request. What I'm doing is trying to reclaim the days and months and years when she didn't have Samuel. Do you know what it is to pray again and again and to come up to the next cycle? Maybe we can find something out about God that we didn't know if we go to Hannah's school. Hannah models a prayerful life. I don't worn myself out. Have I worn you all out? Jesus. Number two, she models an honest life. Verses 13 through 16, I will rehearse them again. Hannah prayed, Hannah was praying silently. 
Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Say the word honesty. Oh, well, look, when a black preacher asks y'all to say something, y'all got to at least try. So, so this, these folks in the first eight rows, they said it, and I didn't hear Nan, one of y'all in the back. So everybody, one more time, say the word honesty. Honesty. See, now you got to do it like that all the time. Stay with me here. Honesty in the text is about criticality, being critical without malice. Uh, Bell Hooks is one of the most um, helpful women for me in my attempt to learn how to be a man, how to be a father, how to be a husband, how to be a pastor. And she's a writer um, that if, you're part, if, if I had my way, I would, and I'm, thankfully, uh, I only have so much power, <laughs> but if I, if, I had, if I had my way, at least three or four of her books would be on our required reading list because we're a multi-ethnic church in the city of Chicago and we're trying to talk about some of the realities that I think Bell Hooks talks about really well from her point of view. Um, since it's not required reading, I'm going to suggest that if you're a part of our church and if um, you're interested in looking at how um, people can begin to talk about politics and race and history and their own personal biography and even faith, that you, that you, uh, that you go and check Bell Hooks out. Anything she writes uh, is, I think, written in love, but in a kind of searing love. She, she is uh, an honest woman, and I, I, I haven't yet hinted malice, although I'm not a white man either. And I think uh, for you white brothers, uh, you might think a little differently. So when you pick her up, let's talk about it, okay? Oh, she's a black feminist, so be really scared, okay? Um, that's a joke for those of you who don't know Pastor Michael. That's, that's a joke. Um, there's nothing to be afraid of. She, she and Hannah are critical and not malicious. I think of her this morning as I read Hannah, who is honest with herself, who, who can't help but be honest with herself. And if you read the entire narrative in 1 Samuel, you will see how honestly uh, she views her life with God. And then there's this part, uh, this interaction between her and Eli in our text. Eli is the priest. 
He's the high priest. He's the priest in charge. He's the one over the temple. He runs the show. He runs the ritual. He has these other sons who eventually, uh, you know, they all get fired because they're immoral and they're evil and God essentially fires them, their whole family. But, but Eli is the high priest. He's the professional religious person. He is the leader. He is the person in power. And in the text, the power is in the temple. He is the institution or symbolic of the institution that controls who sacrifices what and when and how often. He is the priest and Hannah checks him. And you can put a lot of institutions in the place of Eli in the temple, which is the institution that he represents. He represents God, so you can't get much bigger than that, right? I mean, you know, so. Uh, but, but we can use our imagination and think about all these other institutions, right? Law enforcement, but not when laws are broken against poor and black folk. We can think about institutions of justice, as long as the justice is for those who can afford private quality legal representation. We can think about food and institutions related to food if you're not on the south or west side, and especially, though, if you do live along our city's eastern lake shore, preferably north of Madison. Lots of institutions that we can come to this text with and listen for how this text speaks not just about the religious institution, but how we can find truth for the institutions in our world. Hannah critiques Eli and his system so that he re-anchors in God. Critique here, now the end result is him re-anchoring in God. Critique is the means to the end, and critique equals Honesty and her honesty brings about Eli's life transformation. Let me just say this because it came across my mind and I'm random sometimes. We can be persuaded that Eli's life transformation comes when Samuel delivers a prophecy a couple of chapters later. That's just the second helping. The first initial blessing, to use the, the academic language of Pentecost, in, uh, is Eli's life transformation here when he talks to a woman who he misunderstood. He would have been the same uninformed, we used to call him man of God, he, he used to be the same uninformed priest if she kept her words to herself. Her prayerful honesty brings about fruit for him. Her prayerful openness with who she really is, is a gift to Eli and his ministry. She defines herself when Eli couldn't. She tells her own experience and story when Eli couldn't. To him, she's a drunk. She's doing things that Jews don't do. She's, she's doing something in the temple that he can't understand. He has this preconception of her. And for years, by the way, and we'll come back to that, she's a drunk. To him, she's excusable and dismissible. To him, Hannah is just a homeless person. To him, Hannah is just somebody you can walk past. You can put fill in the blank in your own way. To him, Hannah is a person who is worthless. 
depending on your translation, you will see that in the scripture. To him, Hannah is worthless. She says, don't regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety. Worthless there is what is detestable. She is a vile thing. She is worthless. And he's the man of God. Hannah's honesty makes us question our response to people who are deeply troubled. People who are doing things we're unfamiliar with. People who are praying and acting in ways that we've never seen before. The Bible says she pours out her soul. In doing so, she presses us to different values. For years, Eli thought wrong of her, mistook her for someone else. For years, his preconceptions went unchallenged. Then he talked to her. He listened to her tell her story. She's honest. Uh, she's not just real. The difference between being real and being honest is talking. You can be real without telling anybody what you know. To be honest, you have to communicate. And I, I, think, I, think, I think this is a model for us of the honest life. All right, I've got to finish. I've got more to say. Cut that, cut that, cut that. The last thing is that Hannah models a blessed life. Verses 16, 16 through 20. Uh, verse 17 says, Go in peace. This is Eli answering Hannah. Then the God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. There are two other verses there. Uh, Carlton, just begin to come to the keyboard. Just, just begin and sort of just on, be, be thinking about it and you know, so on. Uh, uh, it's, it's blessing, blessing in the text comes in several forms. It is certainly when Samuel is given to his parents. But I'm thinking about the blessing that Hannah is modeling in the form of Eli's benediction to her. He speaks words that are good and grace-filled. His words are saving words, even after the gross way he mistook Hannah. And she accepts the blessing. In her acceptance, after years of being misunderstood, years of being heard differently by God, years of putting herself forward and clarifying who she really is, she models for us what to do when God and God's things return wholly to us. When God and God's institutions return repentant to us, you accept what God has. You embrace the words of God. You are grace 
filled. Turn your ears to the spirit of Jesus, church. And think about what God might be saying to you and to us. It's, it's almost been impossible for me to turn my ears to what God might be saying over these last two weeks. And, and I, I'm almost sure I would not have prayed explicitly if I was not a professional religious person. I'm almost sure if I didn't have to write the prayer of lament. A week ago Friday. That I didn't have to prepare to face God for God's words for you this morning. I'm almost sure I wouldn't have said a thing to Jesus. The gospel in this part of the passage is not Eli's words, but Hannah's embrace. The priest doesn't have the gospel in this text. The wannabe mother has the gospel. The poet and singer has the gospel. The intercessor has the gospel. And here is the blessed life fully lived. The ark, trouble from unanswered prayers all the way to acceptance of some holy offenders somehow given by God grace-filled words. It occurs to me that Hannah was not accepting Eli's words. She was accepting God's evaluation of her. That, 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 that after she defines herself, she does not get a definition from Eli. Oh, she doesn't need that. She does not get an assessment of herself from another person. She gets the gospel, which is what God sees when he sees her. Who needs Eli? Who needs the job? Who needs, who needs the, the test? Who needs the professor? Who needs your mother or your father or your older sister? Who needs your children and what they say about you when you have somebody rehearsing the truth of God about you? I don't give a care what you say. I mean, I, I mean, I can almost just say, it doesn't matter what you think of me. Because I know the truth. I know the truth because I already told you what it was. And God comes along and says, I told you that about you. You're not drunk. You ain't crazy. You ain't what they said about you. I think Hannah is a model for us. And as we prepare for communion this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask some of you to do something. This, this, is, this is not for everybody, but if it is for you. 
I want, you to, I want you to think about Hannah and Eli and the long spectrum because I have set this sermon up where you could be persuaded to think I'm talking about if you're this or if you're that and that there is no complex, long range between how we are all Hannah sometimes and sometimes we're more of Eli. And I have painted it to talk and to sound as if you're either this or that and, and, and I have misrepresented the truth of reality, right? I mean, I'm trying to say now that it's complicated because I can be Eli in the morning and on my way home from church in Logan Square be reminded that I'm, I'm Hannah. And I want you to think about the places in your life where you've been asking God for Samuel or the places in your life where you've misunderstood what you saw and you called somebody by a name that didn't fit them. And what I want to invite you to do, and we're not going to take a long time to do this, but I, I am doing this because I think it is a part of the confession liturgy as we prepare our hearts for communion. To If you want to stand and offer a word or a phrase out of your experience of being Hannah, or Eli, or Hannah and Eli. So one at a time, just stand up and offer that word or that phrase. Out of your experience, now look, I'm not inviting you to get up and preach. I've already preached too long, and you know I preach too long, because you're looking at me like, when are you going to get on, Pastor? But if you've wept bitterly, if you've prayed out of, out of the depth of your soul, and you want to offer something apart, something out of that. Stand up and offer that. If you feel like, you know, I've, I'm, I've been misunderstanding people that, that I need to listen to, stand up and offer that and stay standing. And after, it seems like people who've wanted to do that will take one or two minutes, three minutes to do that. I'm going to ask other people to stand next to you and to confess over you this. Go in peace. That's it. So you know where we're going. You know what we're doing. So if you want to stand one at a time, we won't talk over each other, but we won't take years to do this. If you want to stand and offer a word or phrase out of being Eli, out of being Hannah, out of being Eli and Hannah, this is space that's sacred and therefore safe for you to be honest. And we will bless you. We will not hurt you. We will bless you.